going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, AJ, what is going on, gentlemen? Got the whole crew today. Yes. I'm excited. Back at it. Last time, uh, if you guys haven't heard our Prevagen episode, me and AJ um, just sort of ranted about the OTC supplement the whole time and didn't do an actual episode, <laughs> per se. So that was fun, change of pace. But we're going to get a little bit more uh, back on track today, because this episode is, once again, ACP accredited for one hour of continuing education for pharmacists and nurses, um, thanks to our partnership with FreeCE.com. And so if you are a FreeCE Unlimited member, then after the episode, use the go first go to the uh, link in the show notes that will take you to their website, uh, and then it'll you'll see a uh, area where it'll ask for a password to access the post-activity uh, test, and um, you will use the password BLOOD in all caps. That will give you access to the quiz questions. Um, there's only 10 of them. Knock those out, and you'll get your hour of credit. If you're not an unlimited member with FreeCE.com, we highly encourage you to check out their uh, abundance of different learning opportunities. They have monographs. They have live CEs. They have podcasts, like, you know, us, huh? And, podcast, uh, singular. Yeah, singular podcast. They, well, for now, anyway, until they, <laughs> until they find a much better option than us. <laughs> And, uh, and you, you can also use a promo code that we have in the show notes that will give you um, a discount on the uh, annual cost of the unlimited membership. So definitely check that out. There's a lot of good stuff. And uh, as always, we appreciate them working with us and um, being able to offer this, this service. It's a violent password. Blood? Blood. Why, why is it blood, Cole? What are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about anticoagulation. Yes. Which... Um, we're going to try to hit a lot of different stuff. So anticoagulation is a dense topic. There's a lot of different disease states and conditions related to it. Um, so we're more going to do uh, focus in on kind of drug by drug anticoagulant and then branch off within that into the disease states that it covers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, first thing I want to point out is a little bit of terminology. So um, there are there there's a few different terms for anticoagulant, antithrombotic agent. Um, so an antithrombotic agent would be both antiplatelets, right? So aspirin and clobidogrel, when we're talking about dual antiplatelet therapy, um, those are antiplatelets, but it also includes anticoagulants. So we're going to be focusing on anticoagulants today, um, which uh, primarily the ones that act on thrombin and factor 10A in the clotting cascade. Um, thrombin uh, is important. It's the final enzyme um, of the clotting cascade that produces fibrin. It's formed by the proteolytic cleavage of prothrombin by factor 10A. Uh, so we're going to talk about drugs that um, are direct thrombin inhibitors. And then there's factor 10A, which acts, like I said, immediately upstream of thrombin in the clotting cascade. Uh, it's at the convergence point of the intrinsic and extrinsic coagulation pathways, and it's formed by the proteolytic cleavage of factor 10 um, by an enzyme there, uh, which are made up of other procoagulant factors. And we're going to talk about factor 10A inhibitors as well and what they can be used to treat. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good way of looking at it too. Cause like a lot of these, obviously the clotting cascade, um, you'll see some common targets of our drug therapy. So, um, our factor 10A inhibitors also like our direct thrombin inhibitors, 
And um, we'll also get into some agents uh, or an agent in particular that all of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with. But, um, you know, a, a vitamin K antagonist, which um, known as warfarin, um, which is we'll go through some of the, the clotting factors that are um, vitamin K dependent. And we'll kind of go through that because sometimes it's easy to overlook like the true mechanism of that. So I think that's an important one to kind of go back through just so we have a good solid background you know, context of the mechanism of action for that since it's so commonly used still to this day, even though there's some potentially better options. But we're going to depending on the situation. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that, uh, you know, like Cole was saying, it's hard to like really come up with a good, other than breaking down like, you know, atrial fibrillation or VTE specifically, and like coming up with a very specific disease state that we're covering. Um, it's hard to kind of just lump anticoagulants all together. Mm -hmm. So what we'll try to do is just kind of touch on a lot of the key points, um, for, in some of the uses for like Cole said for individual agents, but, um, this will not be completely all encompassing every disease state. We'll just really want to get into more of the actual, I guess, pharmacology of these and how they're utilized and whatnot. Right. Right. All right. So, um, what do you want to start off with, man? Anything in particular do you want to, you want to talk a little bit about BTE first? Sure. Yeah. Since, um, well, we just, we just said we're not going to get specific. I, know, <laughs> yeah. then I was like, well, we did talk about BTE. So yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, um, in VTE and the, you know, this, depending on the you know agent we're using as well as like you know comparatively to like atrial fibrillation and then we can even go further like non non-valvular fib versus valvular um you're going to be using different options but um when you hear you know the term vte it's basically like the umbrella term for either a deep vein thrombosis um, which is where the clot is formed um and it's kind of stationary it's not you know um embolizing so to speak um, and then once that clot is becomes dislodged and starts to become mobile in the body uh, that's when it can turn into a pulmonary embolism which can uh, become you know fatal within minutes in some cases and uh, yeah, the DVT as long as it's stationary you know, and, and stays a DVT is usually not fatal but we still want to cure it because we do not and take care of that clot because we don't want it to um, become uh, a PE. Right. So VTE thrombo or venous thromboembolism is basically the umbrella term for both of those things. So we'd want to be specific if we were mentioning which type it was. But since a lot of times the treatment and the duration of treatment um, tends to be kind of the same in some of those cases, then we kind of lump them all together under that term. And there's a lot of risk factors related to VTE. We won't get into all of them. You're probably familiar with some of them, um, trauma, obesity, age, but they kind of fall into... Um, three distinct factors known as Virchow's triad, which would be blood stasis, vascular injury, and hypercoagulability, all increasing your risk for VTE. And then the other thing with, with uh, anticoagulants that you'll often see, especially um, in, you know, if you're even if you're in primary care, but especially if you do anything with cardiology or anything like that, um, patients that have atrial fibrillation, you know, we always think of the medications to actually reduce the 
the risk of going from normal sinus rhythm back into AFib or, you know, keeping the patient control as, as well we can from a, a rhythm or rate standpoint. But, you know, the patients that have atrial fibrillation, especially when they're actively in AFib, uh, the, the, the blood can pool in that left atrial appendage, which can then form a clot and then they can kick that clot out, uh, which can cause, you know, an increased risk of stroke and whatnot. So anticoagulants do play a very big role with AFib as well. Yep. So when we go through these, um, the other thing, which I think we did a podcast on this not too long ago, but like acute coronary syndrome, when we're talking about, you know, a patient that's having you know, a STEMI or um, in STEMI, unstable angina, you know, we've, we need to go in there and do a, uh, a PCI and actually place a stent. Um, the anticoagulants um, are also an important role in that process as well, because we want to, as well as antiplatelets, um, but we'll mention a couple of those that are somewhat preferred in most cases for those types of interventions. Um, so yeah, we'll go through the different agents and we'll mention the disease states again that we typically see these in, but, um, we'll go through a lot of the pharmacology, like I said. Right. Um, so I guess we can start with the direct thrombin inhibitors then. Do you want to do that first? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there are, um, parenteral direct thrombin inhibitors. Um, they are bivalrudin and argatraban. Um, they directly block, block thrombin, as you'd imagine from the name. Um, there was an older one that's no longer on the market called lapuridine, um, and then also desiridine, also not on the market. So the only two that you're going to see are bivalrudin and argatraban. Um, so bivalrudin um, is a 20-amino acid peptide. It binds to the thrombin catalytic site and exocyte uh, 1. It reversibly inhibits thrombin enzymatic activity. So one of the things you'll hear us coming back to um, uh, with uh, a lot of these anticoagulants are whether um, it has the ability to have an antidote and to be reversed. When we talk about the vitamin K antagonist, when we talk about um, the bigotran and the DOAX, whether or not they have one, uh, you'll hear that um, come up. So you're, you're going to see these primarily inpatient um, in the hospital. So the indications for bivalrudin um, would be frequently patients undergoing a PCI, a percutaneous coronary intervention, um, and it's also okay to use in uh, HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And we'll touch on that in a minute. Um, and then argatraban uh, is very similar um, as far as um, what it can be used for. It can be used for HIT as well, as well as a PCI, and another direct thrombin inhibitor, parenteral, not oral. Yeah. And, you know, I think the bivalrudin, I think especially, is the one that you'll oftentimes see, you know, given during, you know, an acute coronary syndrome where the patient, like Cole said, is undergoing a PCI. So they're on the way to the cath lab. That's sometimes they'll, they'll start started on something like anoxaparin or low molecular weight heparin. But once it's kind of decided that they do need to get, you know, that percontinuous um, intervention in the stent place, that they will oftentimes um, be switched over to bivalrudin. Um, and that, sort of stems from uh, uh, some older studies that showed some superiority um, with bivalrudin compared to uh, heparin or low molecular weight heparin. Um, I will say, though, that there is um, some data now that shows that that might not be as 
quite important as we thought, or as, as quite as beneficial, I should say, um, as we once thought. Um, however, I, I feel like the some of the inpatient um, providers that I talk with, and some of the do like some of the hospitalists and things, um, have said that they they all still utilize Bible root in the in, in the setting of a uh, PCI. But um, the the study I'm thinking of um, was specifically done in patients uh, that were experiencing a STEMI. It was called the HEAT PPCI trial, if you want to take a look at that. Um, but it was uh, basically saying that Bavarutin might not offer better efficacy um, or safety necessarily compared to unfractionated heparin. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, again, just from historically, you know, we did see a benefit that you'll probably oftentimes still see that used. Right. And the alternative is heparin, low molecular weight heparin. And, and just for some dose adjustments, some things to be aware of, um, our gadraban, uh, which, you know, again, injectable um, direct thrombin inhibitor you'll see sometimes in the inpatient setting, not only in PCI, but if they need an anticoagulation on board and they have had a history of hit or something along those lines, um, they may use this one in, you know, just as a routine. I would know when I did a rotation at East Cooper Hospital, this was like their go-to anticoagulant if they weren't going to use anoxaparin. Um, but it does have dose adjustments um, that are required if the patient has hepatic impairment. Um, so, you know, if the patient has especially uh, unstable hepatic disease, you know, if their child P score is, is B or C, then you, know, there, you do need to make some dose adjustments there. Bivalrudin is something we have to dose adjust based on the creatinine clearance. So once it falls below 30, um, then we would look for a, a dose decrease um, for that agent. Right, right. As far as monitoring um, in a PCI, it's done by the activated clotting time for Argatraban. If you're using Argatraban in HIT, um, you would get an APTT um, at baseline, and um, it should be obtained prior to administration and then repeated two hours after starting therapy. There you go. Um, what about oral direct thrombin inhibitors? Yeah, so the oral direct thrombin inhibitor, the one that we tend to our minds tend to go to is our buddy Dabigatran, uh, which was, it gets lumped in with the factor 10 inhibitors, also known as like the, the DOAX, or used to be called the NOAX, right? The mm -hmm. novel oral anticoagulants. There's also um, Tasoax. Have you seen that one? No. I, th I think, don't hope, don't quote me, but I think it was target selective oral anticoagulant. Uh, and then there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I have seen that now that you say that. NOAX could mean novel Newer, newer, <laughs> or non-vitamin K. All, all NOAC apparently stood for all those things. That one's a bit of a little. Stretch. Uh, it's kind of a stretch. The third huh? one's a stretch. It's a stretch. Um, but uh, yeah, um, basically the dabigatran, you know, was the first uh, of the oral, um, you know, new anticoagulants on the market. The the DOAX, as I prefer to call them, yeah, not so um, new anymore. But it is a yeah, definitely not now. And it's it's one of those things that it's um, now been often replaced by the technically the newer DOAX um, and the actual factor 10 inhibitors. The new new. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Um, but it was out there initially on, and uh, it's, it's a, a true um, direct thrombin inhibitor as opposed to affecting factor 10. But just to kind of go through a couple things with it, um, the half-life uh, that was used or has uh, been reported with this drug is around 12 to 17 hours. So it is dosed twice a day, which, you know, can, especially in a patient who has to take this long term, can be, you know, not ideal. Um, the other thing that's kind of unique about this one is it is very susceptible to um, 
like uh, moisture in the air and and so it comes in a special you know bottle with a desiccant um, or in these blister packs and um, it's supposed to obviously keep the product from from being in contact with moisture and losing its potency and so the patient had to be uh, given this medication and had to be dispensed in the original container um, and then they had to be told to make sure that they don't actually empty these into like a pill box or anything like that because it, depending on where they keep it in their house um, or where they are located you know geographically they may have more um, issues with humidity and whatnot it can actually you know greatly decrease the efficacy of the uh uh, of the dibigatran right significantly and this is important because frequently in the pharmacy this one would very easily just get popped open without realizing that it has to be dispensed in its original container after it's open it just has to be used within four months so it's not like um it's not like it means that you wouldn't be able to use it uh, but it is supposed to be dispensed in its original container for the bioavailability so um interestingly there was a time not too long ago where there was concern that clinicians were having trouble with the DOAX um, as far as dosing and you, uh, using the appropriate doses for the appropriate indication. They actually did some studies and found that a, a large proportion of the uh, prescriptions weren't uh, the correct dose for the indication. So they, they mentioned specifically with the Bigotran to make sure you're not underdosing. Um, so I'll mention a couple of the doses for VTE primary prophylaxis in surgical patients. It's 110 milligrams one to four hours after surgery, followed by 220 milligrams once a day for 28 to 35 days, specifically for a hip replacement, or 10 days for a knee replacement. If you're treat, treating and for secondary prevention of a VTE, it's 150 milligrams twice a day for five to 10 days. Um, I'm sorry, 150 milligrams twice daily after five to 10 days of parenteral anticoagulation. Um, adequate treatment for VTE is full dose anticoagulation for three to six months. And then this one can also be used for AFib, right? So stroke prevention and AFib, 110 milligrams twice a day or 150 milligrams twice a day with creatinine clearance greater than 30. Um, and interestingly, for a lot of the ones we're going to talk about, there's different dose labeling in Europe. So for our friends across the pond, you're probably going to see different doses for that. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because we do, do we do have a lot of international listeners, believe it or not. Right. And so, yeah, that's a good point to, to, to make. Um, the other thing that's kind of unique about this one, uh, and this came directly from um, the studies like that we're looking at, um, this being utilized in AFib patients. So um, patients, when they were comparing this to warfarin, so this was, again, for stroke prevention in AFib, um, they we're looking at not only the efficacy, but also the risk profile from like a bleed standpoint and other just random adverse effects. And so, um, the compared to warfarin directly, um, it did seem to be that this one, um, might be a little bit more efficacious as far as, um, the overall outcomes and like, um, reducing the risk of like a stroke and whatnot. But, um, it did seem to increase the, the risk of like a GI bleed potentially more so, um, than warfarin. Um, and so it's something that, uh, because the, some of the data with, especially in, in AFib specifically with some of the other agents, um, is a little bit, you know, more impressive, um, that, that, you know, this, that's kind of why this fell out of favor somewhat. Um, the other thing that's kind of important, if you look at like the, uh, recommendations, at least how this in the, how the drug was studied initially, um, the, 
when we think about like starting like Warfront, and we'll get into this in a little bit if like is it the why, but we often bridge with a low molecular weight heparin or an unfractionated heparin um, to avoid like a hypercoagulable state, which makes sense with Warfront. We'll explain why when we get there, but. Uh, with a DOAC, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. But they, this one initially was studied with that bridge therapy. So the initial like package insert recommended bridge therapy, you know, with dabigatran or in, you know specifically because that's how it was studied. Right. I, I don't know of anyone who actually does that right. in practice. So just to kind of throw that out there because it really didn't make sense. You're technically um, anticoagulated pretty quickly after taking you know the starting dose. Right. Um, the other big common side effect that people will complain about this one in particular is dyspepsia. Mm-hmm. It's very common, um, up to 33% and some studies have showed that, uh, dyspepsia can happen. So, you know, patients that have, um, you know, issues with reflux and things of that nature, you know, we got to be cautious with this one. And again, this one's not utilized nearly as often as it used to be. Um, it's, it's initial claim to fame when it first started to fall out of favor was that it had a reversal agent. It was like mm-hmm. one of the first of the DOACs to have a reversal agent. And since it's different than the factor 10 inhibitors, it had a unique reversal agent that wouldn't work on the other agents. Um, so the the brand name for that was Praxbind. And, um, My dear Ucizumab or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was something that, you know, that was its... It was, uh, that was its, its go-to as far as, you know, uh, well, at least the other ones, you know, if you start bleeding, there's nothing we can do, which is not quite true. But um, now that those also have the reversal agent, they can't quite use that. Which turns out to be a bigger deal than maybe it was portrayed to me, like when I was in school. Like we were kind of taught that like, yeah, Warfarin's got a reversal agent and Dabigatrans had just come out, but it they didn't really harp on it too much. But I, I've come to find that it's kind of a big deal to have a way to... Reverse like, it. Reverse. Other it. than just giving blood. <laughs> right. Other than giving blood or activate a charcoal for what's in your stomach or something like that. Yeah. So the RELI trial, um, which was a big trial with Dabigatran versus Warfarin and AFib, uh, found that non-bleeding GI events, so Mike mentioned dyspepsia, also dysmotility and um, reflux were twice as common with Dabigatran than Warfarin. So that definitely is a significant side effect of it. Yeah. So um, that's Dabigatran, but uh, we also have our other our DOACs, um, which would be a Pixaban. Um, we have a Doxaban and we have Rivaroxaban. Um, those three are also, uh, utilized for both the treatment of VTE as well as stroke prevention and AFib patients. Um, and they're for non-vabular AFib, they're, they're usually preferred over warfarin. Um, if you look at the, uh, um, the guidelines, uh, from most recently in the U S anyway, um, there's also an agent called, um, uh, Bitrixaban, which is, um, utilized for prophylaxis of, of DVT in a patient who has an extended hospital stay, but you would not use that one in the same capacity that you would the other DOAX. So right. it's in the same class, but, uh, it is, it is a different agent. One positive thing of DOAX as we go through, we'll obviously get into it, but I just want to mention off the top is, um, Lesser drug interactions compared to warfarin. Warfarin has all sorts of them. But it's not drug interaction free, which, um, I don't know, was kind of my perception for a while. I would think of rivaroxaban as having three, four interactions. Um, But there is something relatively new that found um, an increased bleed risk with apixaban along with systemic fluconazole. And they think that's related to the three, four interaction. Uh, it's only systemic, it's not topical fluconazole, but they found that there was a three and a half fold increased risk of bleeding, um, with patients taking that combination compared to, to when they were receiving Epixaban Eliquis without fluconazole. And it, they did not see that increased risk with the other DOACs either. So 
Um, we'll talk about some of the studies. We generally think of Eliquis as being very low bleed risk compared to the others, um, but this specific in- specific instance is um, just in the last few months this came out. Yeah, that's a, I think it was like May of this year, right? That yeah. warning was put out. Yeah. Um, the other thing is the the doses um, can all vary amongst these agents, and and depending on what treatment you're uh, you know you're or which disease that you're actually utilizing these in, whether it be VTE or, or AFib or um, even now uh, rivaroxaban, you may see um, some of the really low doses, um, like for example the 2.5 milligrams. You may see that floating around. That's not just because we're trying to lower. Um, are using low doses in these other disease states that it was originally approved for, but they actually have a um, an indication now at 2.5 milligrams of rivaroxaban um, twice a day for peripheral arterial disease, um, specifically in patients that have diabetes. So Interesting. Um, th- that uh, is some of the newer data, newer approvals for that particular uh, medication, but that has doses all over the place. And um, each one of them has their own specific dose adjustments based on... Um, either renal function for some um, it can also be um, you know a combination of things like with the eloquis um, and the one that i always like just always stands out to me is the adoxaban which i feel like that's one i never really see anyway um, mm-hmm. but that's a pretty unique agent in the fact that its dose or its renal dose adjustment is actually um, completely backwards from what we would typically think so it has a a dose adjustment if to where if the creatinine clearance is above 95, so your creatinine clearance is too good, basically, you can't use this medication. Um, it's not, it's basically just not uh, filtered out appropriately and, uh, or, or reduced. I'm sorry, it's filtered out too quickly, rather, and it's gotten rid of. And this, and also, if the creatinine clearance is less than 15, you also can't use it because then it builds up too, to too high of an extent. You know what's confusing to me about that? Tell me, is that edoxaban is the least by a percentage renally excreted of the four. I just thought I'm going to have to find the table again, but I think it was 25%. But then as you looked at the other ones, they were all a higher percentage renally excreted. I'm, I'm confused by that, but I guess that's just a, a specific thing with a doxaban. I yeah. love an answer to why that is. Yeah, I, but I mean, that's literally like in the the oh, yeah. packages. It's just bizarre. I, I can't think of a single other drug that's the case. Can you? No. no. You're, y'all, sorry, sir, your kidneys work too well. Yeah. <laughs> we sorry, sir, you are too healthy for this drug. So, yeah, that's just um, one of those things that, uh, um, you know, is unique to that. Um, the other thing with rivaroxaban, I mentioned, like, the low, now that it's got these lower doses floating around, um, specifically when you get to 15 milligrams and, and up, so 15 and 20 milligrams, basically, it does need to be taken with a meal because that mm-hmm. will, at that point, it affects the absorption. It's not... Uh, food doesn't affect the absorption at the lower doses, but once you get higher, it, it actually becomes a much bigger role. Right. Um, so it's once a day treatment, usually for like a- in AFib patients, um, but it's taken with you know or after a meal, um, and so that that's not as big of a deal with the PAD indications and whatnot. But just to kind of be aware, there is a difference there. And that's the only one that has that um, that indication. Um, as far as so they're all pretty similar as far as efficacy. There are some subtle differences, and there's some subtle differences as far as safety goes with um, different disease states. As far as differences between them, um, apixaban, similar to dabigatran, is given twice daily. Rivaroxaban and, and adoxaban are both once daily, so that's a, um, a positive thing if you had a, a patient who might have an issue with that. Um, as far as 
their efficacy goes. Uh, there was a retrospective review of um, like 37,000 patients with VTE prescribed either apixaban or rivaroxaban for the first time. And the risk of recurrence using some special score that they use was lower with apixaban than rivaroxaban. Uh, there were about 11.4 fewer events per 100 person years with apixaban. Um, so that's not a, a strong level of evidence, but you know if you're looking for something something um, um, to guide that is an interesting um, study in their in uh, epixaban's favor yeah i think the other thing to consider too is uh their um, use in patients that are obese um, because the guidelines haven't really given us like a set difference i would say but they definitely well, give they don't some give guidance. any dose yeah, yeah, yeah um and so as far as like because the initial concern was that if a patient has a bmi 30 or greater, um, that they would lose their efficacy. So if you look at some of the um, older studies, like the pharmacokinetic studies, it looked like there was about a 30% um, decrease in, and this is for apixaban specifically, just to give you an example, but a 30% decrease in the uh, Cmax and 20% decrease in area under the curve mm. um, when a patient was 120 kilograms or more. Um, now that being said, um, specifically like in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, um, they've done some sub uh, sub uh, analysis uh, from the randomized controlled trials, um, and they showed that uh, you know the enrolling patients basically receiving a pixaban showed less major bleeding in patients that were greater than 120 kilograms compared to the, um, the lower weight patients. So in that case, it may actually have been somewhat of a good thing um but the, it doesn't seem to to actually lower the efficacy in some of the at least the limited knowledge that we have so i think in that particular case you know a lot of these you know agents that are newer until we have definitive data you know you're still going to want to use some caution um but it's something that uh a lot of times the data is shown even in patients with bmi over 40 um that there's not necessarily a dose uh, adjustment necessary so just something to keep in mind it's still you know they're, they're still looking into it and something that they need to um you know consider and, and weigh way right. out when you're looking at options and it may you know come up on rounds or what have you but it, there is at least some data to back up using this in in overweight patients obese patients right um as far as some other differences uh edoxaban and vte don't you have to use a parenteral agent first before getting into the adoxaban dosing? Adoxaban. Well, so it's the same thing. They basically studied it that way. Yeah. So they have to include that. But I don't know of anybody that actually does that clinically. Gotcha. Or I don't know anybody who uses adoxaban anyway. So I, sh I should also preface it with that. Right. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's just because they set the study up that way. In VTE, rivaroxaban and adoxaban also have kind of a like a loading dose, a higher dose before you get into the maintenance dosing. Yes. Um, as far as bleed risk goes, so... There was one study, um, it was about 5,000 patients. It was also retrospective, looking at rivaroxaban and adoxaban, um, ultimately finding that rivaroxaban may have a slightly higher bleed risk, um, mainly bleeds in the lower GI tract. Um, so it, neither of them were extremely significant. It was like 3.2 versus 2.5 bleeds per 100 person years. Uh, but again, if you're looking for something to direct you, they think it was related actually to the higher peak concentrations from the once daily dosing of rivaroxaban versus the twice daily of apixaban. So interestingly, a negative about the once daily dosing of rivaroxaban, but that's just a theory. Yeah. 
So these are definitely uh, definitely the go-to options for a lot of different things now, um, and you'll see these a lot more um, than they were previously, but definitely something to be aware of as far as those warnings and concerns. Right. Anything else with those in particular? No, we could circle back to them with a little extra um, near the end if we need to, but I want okay. to talk about Warfarin. Yeah, I want to make sure we get, uh, get all these in. So Warfarin. So this drug is something, like I said, I'm pretty sure a lot of you are familiar with, um, but it's you know pretty unique in far as far as its mechanism of action so um i feel like you know because of the the diet restrictions um or at least uh, diet stability i should say that you need to have with this when it comes to vitamin k intake sometimes people assume that it's just straight up blocking vitamin k and then that's just how the the you know the, the mechanism is, is working which isn't actually the case um and so if we think about like the actual mechanism, uh, or let's say even take it back further, let's talk about vitamin K in general. So the reduced form of vitamin K is utilized um, as part of the, the activation process for the clotting factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 specifically. And um, so we don't really store a lot of vitamin K in the body. And so it's a lot of it's coming directly from our diet. And so the vitamin K in its reduced form is utilized as like sort of like a cofactor for um, that activation of those four clotting factors that are vitamin K dependent. Um, and its byproduct is actually obviously the oxidized form of vitamin K, which again, we need, we don't really store true vitamin K. So in order to like, you know, not just go let that go to waste, uh, we have the enzyme um, vitamin K oxide reductase um, or even better um, epoxide reductase because it actually forms like this epoxide vitamin K and that enzyme is what uh, you'll see it abbreviated as V-Core but that uh, that enzyme is actually what recycles the vitamin K back into its reduced form that it can be utilized again for, as a cofactor for that reaction um, warfarin actually blocks that particular enzyme and so if you have you know, uh, a steady concentration of intake, you know, from the diet perspective of vitamin K, once you get the patient's um, level stable, as long as they stay consistent with that vitamin K intake, you'll keep them in the, the range, specifically using the INR that we, um, that we want them to be in. INR being if uh, the, the lower the INR, the more coagulable they are, and the higher it is, the more uh, you know, uh, anticoagulable they are. Sorry for the dogs barking. Um, and that will um, and basically uh, increase the bleed, the bleed risk if it goes higher. So that being said, you know, if you start taking in um, more green leafy vegetables or other like vitamin K rich foods, um, basically you are introducing more vitamin K, which allows for more um, clotting to happen before the warfarin can actually get to that new, you know, concentration of vitamin K and, and, and shut off that enzyme. So it's like it's starting it prior to the vitamin K um, and the oxide reductase enzyme playing a role that it's hard to say that without seeing a graph i feel like or not a graph I but think a picture i think you explained it perfectly oh thank you cole aj do you concur sounds good okay yeah. thanks did AJ. you follow along aj we're gonna quiz, we're gonna quiz you after playing, proof. he's playing on instagram <laughs> but um yeah so and then vice versa obviously we'd also don't want to just go and uh stop you know you don't want to go to the carnivore diet all of a sudden if you've been eating a lot of green leafy vegetables and uh just take <laughs> away all your vitamin k because now that's going to cause a new problem it's a new one for me the carnivore diet you even heard of that just, no. just, people just eat straight meat like, what yeah i yeah. did it did you why yeah, is yeah. pitiful 
It's terrible. It was not fun. Me and AJ tried it for a week one time just to be funny. <laughs> Remember that? I lost a lot of weight. I did. It really does make you lose weight, except it'll destroy your GI tract. You just, you just, it's just, you don't Literally eat carbs because you're eating meat just all the time. Meat. So no carbs. Yeah. yeah. That's probably what makes you lose the weight, right? Yeah. I, I would def- So what would be wrong, be, be wrong with meat and vegetables? Because it's, you know, it's meat heads that came up with that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's stupid. But, you know, you, you've seen that guy like Liver King on like social media and stuff? Oh, sure have. He's a big advocate for primals. Yeah, it's so annoying. For the carnivore diet? Yeah, but yeah, it's the same kind of Yeah, but concept. he's a little like... He's over the top. He's nuts, huh? He also says he doesn't do steroids, which we know is, <laughs> which know is a lie. But, um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, he's like, a vegetable, I would never. Like, he also like, doesn't he sleep on like... I don't know. Probably. He's a weird dude. He doesn't like sleep on a bed. He sleeps on like uncomfortable things. Yeah, of course. Because why wouldn't you? I know. That's so dumb. I prefer my bed. (laughs) I like my bed. Yeah. Um, Anyways. So. Shout out Liver King. (laughs) So a little more about Warfarin and Vitamin K antagonists. So they're challenging because they have a narrow therapeutic window, right? Their therapeutic range is narrow and their dosing is affected by... Many factors, diet, like Mike was talking about, also drug interactions, even genetic variations. Um, so we have some advantages and disadvantages that Mike kind of mentioned. Disadvantages would be there's generally seems to be higher rates of thromboembolic events and bleeding complications associated with warfarin in patients with AFib. Um, there is, like we all know, the requirement for frequent monitoring of INR, which you don't have to do with the DOAX, though that can be a um, two-edged sword. I don't think that's the right analogy, but it, it might be a good thing, right? So in with the DOAX, we don't have, while we don't have to do the monitoring there, there's monitoring to be done, but not cons- constant monitoring like INR. There's no consistent way to make sure that the patient is adherent and in a um, anticoagulable state. Yeah. Whereas with warfarin, even though there's an annoying monitoring to be done, we can know that they're safe and they're taking their medication. Yeah. Um, I, just, to, just to piggyback off that really quick, because that always gets confused. When I'm talking to my PA students and whatnot, I'll say if, if adherence is something you're worried about, then maybe warfarin would be a better option, which sounds totally backwards because you're from the monitoring standpoint. But I always think about like this one patient that we saw when I was in school still, and I did I was on the, I did a rotation with the stroke team, and the person the patient had come to uh, South Carolina on vacation and had AFib, and they were taking um, one of the DOACs is is uh, you know prevention stroke prevention, and um, forgot their medication at home on and they were like I'm only going to be here for a few days who cares didn't take it um, dropped out of from having a stroke on the beach Ugh. like two days into the vacation because within you know one missing one dose two doses at the you're already going to be back in that you know hypercoagulable or not even hyper but just regular coagulable state mm-hmm. and that risk comes right back so and there's warnings on there for yeah, increased risk to not stop them yeah, yeah exactly. events if, if with abrupt continuation yeah so that's the big thing is just because there's no monitoring doesn't mean that the adherence doesn't be isn't super important right you might even see a recommendation which i've seen where if you have a patient on warfarin, like if you're considering like who might be a candidate for one drug over another, and you have a patient on warfarin who's really good about following up with their INR visits, you're like, you might think, oh, that's a that that's good for warfarin. It's a good guy for warfarin because he's good at following up. But that actually, what's you might could argue, well, he's adherent with his visits, up. which means that he's probably going to be adherent with a DOAC too. Whereas somebody who was inconsistent with their INR follow ups, 
the first reaction might be, we need to get him on a DOAC because we can't. he's having trouble following up about the warfarin. But really, that might mean, no, it might be more dangerous because he might not be reliable to take his medicine. Right. Very interesting way to look at things, but it is kind of, it's kind of backwards, but it makes sense when you think about it. When you look at it in a mirror. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so there's also um, the, there's a cost burden associated with the visits for INR and a time commitment, but then there's a bit more of a cost burden from just a straight drug standpoint from the DOAX. Not as much of an issue these days with, with if you're insured, if you're uninsured, that's different enough. Generally speaking, unless you have access to um, lower cost drugs and things like that, subsidized drugs. Um, with warfarin, the dosing is affected by illness, um, changes in diet, all the drug interactions. Advantages of warfarin might be it's been used for a long time, large body of clinical evidence to support its use, and the clinicians who've been practicing for a while are familiar with it. We mentioned the kind of the studies looking at um, inaccurate dosing with the DOAX. Uh, there's greater efficacy than other um, anticoagulants and prosthetic heart valves. So mechanical heart valves, that sort of thing, you don't use the DOAX, you only use warfarin. Uh, it's low cost. It's widely available. It's very easily reversed, and we have very good data on that and um, how to do that. Um, there's the ability to increase the intensity of the anticoagulation when appropriate, if the monitoring says that you need to do that, all those sorts of things. Uh, so there's a lot of, of different things you want to consider when um, looking at warfarin versus one of the others. The other thing with warfarin, I guess this is a good, and we'll come back, I guess, to talking about um, INR and like reversals of this, since that's, there's some nuances to that as well. But um, when you're treating a patient specifically for VTE, um, you know, the, you'll, you'll always hear people talk about bridging therapy, um, which can get kind of confusing. I feel like if you don't think about it initially, because it's like, well, why, why do we need to bridge, you know, because you'll the, basically what we're trying to avoid is warfarin puts the patient in a hypercoagulable state initially, which sounds like how the heck would that happen when it's an anticoagulant? Uh, but we already mentioned some of the clotting factors that are vitamin K dependent. We actually have some of our anti or our natural anticoagulants that are um, also vitamin K dependent. So some of the more common and our natural anticoagulants that we always think about, protein C, protein S, um, those are also going to be dependent on vitamin K as well. And they also have shorter half-lives than the, the clotting factors do. So when you first start a patient on warfarin, those anti or natural anticoagulants actually are the first to go away as far as you know their availability and the person is pushed into like a hypercoagulable state initially so bridging with anoxaparin low molecular heparin um, you know is is a good way to instantly keep the the patient um, anticoagulated until the patient's INR becomes stable usually 2 to 3 is what we're um, we're shooting for in most disease states. Um, sometimes you'll see 2.5 to 3.5 for like certain like high risk indications like mechanical um, mitral valves or two mechanical heart valves, things like that. Uh, but oftentimes two to three is the usually the range we're looking for. And so the thought is, while we are waiting for that INR to stabilize, we give bridge therapy. Usually we do five days of therapy or until they are therapeutic they've reached the therapeutic INR, so which could be long, but at least five days. So it could usually be longer than, or not usually, but it could be longer than that. So if you check it, you know, after five days and they're a 1.7, then probably do another day or two of the, the bridge therapy until they're in that therapeutic range. Uh, right. But that's the reasoning behind it. Now, this is not the case for AFib. Um, they, they used to bridge with for AFib as well, but they kind of 
um, have done away with that because the patient doesn't have an active clot. Um, but uh, when it comes to VTE, that's the bridge therapy is absolutely important. Yep, for sure. Uh, there is some baseline monitoring that you want to do for warfarin. So we obviously have the INR like Mike talked about. But at baseline, um, get a prothrombin time uh, along with the INR and baseline activated um, partial thromboblastin time, APTT. Also get a CBC, serum creatinine to check the GFR, liver function tests. Um, you may be able to identify some potential alterations in warfarin metabolism if somebody has an issue. And then you don't want to use it in patients um, who are pregnant. So if they're of childbearing potential, you might want to confirm that as well. Usually we use low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin in pregnant patients. Yes. Yes. The, the other thing is with warfarin too, if we think, if you, if you guys have ever like worked in like a dispensing pharmacy, you notice there's quite a few strengths available. It comes in you know, one, two, three, four, five, six milligrams. I, I can't remember all the different doses, but there's a lot. So why, you know, is that? Um, or you may have noticed that there's some weird regimens that'll get people will be put on sometimes where the patient will be on like five milligrams Monday through Friday and then like two milligrams on Saturday and Sunday. Um, it's one of those things that with warfarin, when we have to change the dosing and make dose adjustments based on the patient's INR, we base it off of the total weekly dose of warfarin. Mm -hmm. So you would, let's say the patient's on five milligrams every day. We would take that and uh, look at, you know, we'd start with the 35 milligrams per week, and that's what we would make, you know, our doses, you know, a 10 to 15% dose change um, based on that week. And then we would s spread out the, you know, how we can separate that out um, from a day-to-day -day -day standpoint. And if it doesn't quite work out, then maybe we have to use two different doses on different days. So right. um, it, it can get can kind of confusing, but that's where that's coming from is basically the, the fact that you're going off the week dosing, not the day, just day, individual day dosing. It can get confusing. And so to me, that's a negative, the confusing dosing, especially because it's going to be changing. It may be changing frequently if you can't get a consistent INR. So to me, that's a, a mark in the DOAC favor, but also it's still only going to be once a day. So versus a patient who might have an issue with a twice a day DOAC, uh, if that's the one that for whatever reason, the only one they would have access to is one of the twice a day ones. Warfarin might be better in that instance. So Mike mentioned five milligrams a day, 35 milligrams a week. That's probably generally the most common starting dose and then monitor INR and adjust from there. For a patient who's frail, uh, older, 70 to 80 years old, maybe they're malnourished or they have a kidney or, or liver disease. Um, when you pull their labs, you might, or they're on a drug that interacts, right? Like amiodarone or all sorts of other drugs that interacts. Uh, that might raise the level. You may start with a lower dose, like 2.5 a day or 2.5 alternating with five, which would be like, what would that be? Like 27.5 or something a week if you're looking at the weekly dose. Um, so yeah, you do have to consider those factors before you start. I had a patient one time who I was, I was seeing for diabetes, I think, but was on warfarin. And I just kind of you know, made a mental note of that they were on warfarin. And she's, she, we're talking about the, just starting to talk about that. She was like, oh, Good news about my diet. I was like, oh, yeah, what? what, what I've never seen this patient before, so I don't know how mm -hmm. it's going to be good news for me necessarily. <laughs> um, she's like, good news about my diet. I'm like, oh, what's that? And she's like, I'm vegan now. I said, what's up? <laughs> she's like, oh, I just do. I did nothing but uh, the vegan diet, so I eat so many vegetables now. And I was like, huh, how long did this happen? She's like, about know, a month ago. Oh crap. <laughs> she had been on warfarin for a very long time, like so was not getting INR checks. So sure enough, we checked our INR and it was not correct. Yeah. 
Um, but it was just funny because she was so excited to tell me. And then I had to like, like very, it's okay. And we're going to fix it. But, and then kind of burst the bubble a little bit. Right. <laughs> so like, Please let us know before you do that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. War, it's those sorts of things are the reason why it's very, Warfarin is very unique. You have like clinics kind of dedicated, yeah. clinics have dedicated to Warfarin. Patients will come to see their maybe clinician, maybe pharmacist yeah. just for Warfarin management because it has to be so closely monitored. We can get the INR like right there and know what it is and then talk to the patient. It's a conversation about lifestyle. Like if their INR is out of range, what's changed? You know, did, did, uh, I was, I had a warfarin, um, clinic rotation at the VA. Um, and it was maybe in January or so. So for the first two weeks, everybody's INR was in the tank. Uh, this was in Aiken, South Carolina because they had all had a bunch of collard greens over, <laughs> over Christmas. Um, and so that was like the question to everybody is, is every time their iron R was low, I'd be like, so you, do you have any collard greens over Christmas? They're like, yeah, I had my collards. And now the, is that like really tank. big in Aiken? It's a big in like the South, South Carolina. Okay. Stuff. Yeah. I gotcha. I don't you like, don't like collard greens? No. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know how you f- how to feel about that. Yeah, collard greens is a cultural staple. Oh, uh, my grandma used to make collard greens at all the at all the um, holiday stuff. We're cultured, yeah. and Mike, uh, you know, add I'm some salt over. on them. Collard greens. Are I great. eat bagel bites for for <laughs> on Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so diet and counseling, and then dosing adjustments from there. So yeah, One, let's mention reversal too, since we're on it. So okay, vitamin K. Being the reversal uh, option of choice, um, specifically uh, available under the brand name Mephitin, um, oral and um, injectable versions or IV formulations. Um, Basically, what we are looking at is when the INR is elevated to a certain extent or they're actively bleeding on warfarin, we would probably want to administer this. Um, So the INR can be a little different, though, than we would expect um, because... Two to three is our normal range. So if you have a patient that comes in and their INR is in 8.5, which we actually had just this week at my clinic, um, the tendency may be to everybody panic. <laughs> but um, it's it's uh, it's not not that case. So we'll, there's a few, like, kind of like a breakdown of four different groups, basically. So INR uh, that's above therapeutic range, but it's still less than 4.5 and, and not bleeding. Um, we want to basically reduce um, or at least, if nothing else, skip a warfarin dose, monitor the INR, and then um, resume the warfarin when the INR is therapeutic again. Figure out what happened, maybe the diet change, like Cole was mentioning, or what have you. Um, if the INR is 4.5 to 10, and again, there's no bleeding present, we would want to hold one to two doses of warfarin. So this is the range where we would actually, we would actually absolutely hold and not just dose reduce. Um, and then we would resume a lower dose of warfarin when the INR was uh, therapeutic range again. Um, we do not have to give vitamin K unless they need surgery or are actively bleeding. Um, and then when the INR is above 10, that is when we're holding warfarin and we're giving 2.5 to 5 milligrams orally of that mephitin. Um, and then we're starting a lower dose of warfarin once that INR is therapeutic again. Where that is different is if they are having a major bleed. Let's say they have a GI, an active GI bleed, their hemoglobin is tanking. Um, we are going to obviously 
hold the warp <laughs> um, but also giving the vitamin k usually by slow iv infusion um, and then also you know doing a, a four-factor prothrombin complex um, which is usually suggested over fresh frozen plasma in that kind of situation um, but uh, iv formulation in that case so it's more of an emergency standpoint but um, you know the the inr chain as long as they're not bleeding that's the big thing so assessing hemoglobin levels and whatnot but as long as they're not bleeding we, we would wait until all the way up to 10 before actually giving oral vitamin k so i think that's way higher than people anticipate it's pretty high i think if i saw that i'd be concerned i am we like i said we had an 8.5 this week and it was like oh no <laughs> it was actually one of my old pa students that was like everyone relax <laughs> i was like yes dr vino told me yeah don't freak out until after 10 don't freak out until after 10 <laughs> Um, um, do you mentioned a lot of the interactions already, right? I only mentioned specifically amiodarone. So if you want to touch on some specific ones, it, basically, and we won't go through all these cause there's so many, but with warfarin, it is a substrate for two C nine. Um, and then it's a minor substrate for two, two, um, SIP one, a two, two C 19 and, um, three, a four. And, uh, it's also an inhibitor of two C nine and a weak inhibitor of two C 19. And so, you know, the anticoagulant, or I'm sorry, uh, the anti-epileptics, anti-convulsants, um, especially our old school ones like carbamazepine, phenobar, phenytoin, um, are things that we think of with like 2C9. Um, and then like Cole had mentioned amiodarone, um, as well as like you know, he, the fluconazole, like we talked about with the Pixaman, that's also a, a worry here from an oral standpoint. And then Bactrim is another one um, that can interact with 2C9 and um, interact with Warfarin specifically. Yep. The other thing to be aware of that I feel like is more prevalent now than it was in the past is looking for patients that are on herbal supplements that are not going to be like a direct, you know, interaction from like a SIP standpoint. Because we do know that things like um, St. John's Ward and things like that will interact from a SIP standpoint. But there's also a lot of um, herbal supplements that can just overall increase bleeding risk, whether it be they affect platelet aggregation or what have you. And so when you're on anticoagulant, anything that can increase bleed risk, we want to avoid. But just to kind of throw out some some uh, you know, herbal products that we got to be aware of, um, I always think of the G's, so like garlic, ginger, ginkgo, even ginseng to some extent, um, can all increase uh, bleed risk. And I think a lot of those tend to deal with platelet aggregation and whatnot, but if they're already on anticoagulant, that can be a problem. Turmeric, um, even like fenugreek can be an issue. Evening primrose can be a problem. And so those are things just to be aware of and um, make sure that we're checking, you know, patients for over-the-counter use. Cannabis as well. Cannabis can, oh yeah, yeah, that's true. That is true. I forgot about that. So as medicinal cannabis becomes more prevalently used, that's another one um, that it's going to be needing to be watched out for. Is it a leafy green? <laughs> I guess depending on who you ask. Does it does it act the same way if you smoke it or you eat the? I don't know, maybe it's it, not so I, leafy I once it, it gets to that it. point. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's a, there's a sip interaction too, right? Yeah, I uh, believe two C nine. Maybe well, that would make sense. That is smoke. one. Of the, yeah, it's like cigarettes. Yeah. Anything so. else on warfarin? I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty, but... Oh, there's a bunch. Yeah. Um, I just didn't know if you had anything specific. Yeah. I did want to mention before we finish that there is a, um investigational drug out there that is a factor 11 inhibitor, specifically a factor 11A inhibitor in development. It's called asynduxian, uh, specifically used for AFib. So in some of the um, studies that, that are working on getting it approved... Uh, there were 753 participants with AFib, older patients, mean age of 74 years old. Um, 
that were assigned to receive either two doses of this, um, a Sundexian, put up against a Pixaban, five milligrams twice a day. The rates of bleed were similar um, or lower in the um, investigational arm, a Sundexian, and there were no major bleeding um, and clinically relevant non-major bleeding occurred in a low percentage of patients, um, a lower percentage of patients. Um, not, I don't know if that's statistically significant compared to Pixaban. So that was over 12 weeks, um, and I, I don't know if this was phase two or phase three or whatnot, but uh, yeah, so that was from a few months ago, so that might be a new one on the block somewhere Factor down the road. Factor 11. Factor 11A. Didn't even know there was such a thing. That's what it's telling me here. So That's cool. Unless it's making it up, up to date. Update does is known to make up stuff. They <laughs> well, they throw in a couple like this is like in a big satire articles. Oh, yeah, you, you see a lot of up to date. <laughs> that's, not, on, that's not true. A lot of up to date on Conan. You know, <laughs> they pull it out on. <laughs> they did it on again. Those late night <laughs> factor eleven inhibitors. Yeah. Them up to date in the onion. Those are the two. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. <laughs> uh, that would not be the place. <laughs> um, I guess let's talk real quick about unfractionated heparin, just since we've mentioned it a couple times, but. Um, this is unique in that it, it is basically potentiating uh, the action of antithrombin-3, which is another one of our very prominent um, natural anticoagulants, um, which is going to inactivate thrombin and factor 10 and uh, in preventing that conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. Um, so this can be used in, when in certain situations, whether it be for treatment or prophylaxis, um, depending on the indication. A lot of times during pregnancy um, is when you'll see this. So, um, sometimes if patients have an mal active malignancy that uh, requires anticoagulation, um, heparin or low molecular weight, heparin even more so was kind of the go-to agent. Um, now they're starting to move towards DOAX in that patient group, but um, you may still see that being utilized. Um, but the big thing to pay attention to with um, unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin, um, like anoxaparin, would be the risk of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which Cole had mentioned, but that's what, you know, is previous, is hit. Um, and basically what happens is um, platelet factor four is released, um, and that's one of the things that is signaling other platelets to start that aggregation process. Um, the problem is, is, is uh, platelet factor four binds with very high affinity to heparin. Um, and so some individuals can develop these antibodies uh, to the um, factor, platelet factor four heparin complex that forms. And so um, any platelet that contains this complex will then be targeted um, by our splenic macrophages. Um, and so they have something called the 4T score that you can kind of estimate the likelihood of, of a patient developing HIT. Um, but once the patient does, uh, if they do develop that thrombocytopenia, um, it's important to no longer utilize unfractionated heparin or low molecular heparin. And that's where that agatroban and bibelrudin can also come into play. Um, so just kind of wanted to make sure we mentioned that because I think that that's uh, an important piece. Yeah. If I do say so myself. Comes up a lot. And obviously that is an injection. Uh, and if patients are using an outpatient for pregnancy, mm -hmm. they would have to inject themselves, which a lot of people have bad memories of, of having to do that for a period of time that I talk to because I deal with injections a lot. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, I've done I've done the, the heparin injections before and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, this isn't like that. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I, uh feel like that's a pretty mild injection. Yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah. But, you know, so nobody likes seeing the needle and I love all that it. stuff. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> I just love giving myself an injection for no reason. Speaking of steroids. Yeah, no, not, <laughs> not that kind. That would hurt. <laughs> no, no, not that kind. That's a too big of a needle. AJ would have to give me that. AJ would love, AJ would no love it. No comment. He'd get the biggest needle possible. Yeah, he'd be like, all right, 18 gauge it is. Like, no, <laughs> that looks like a sword. <laughs> 
What else? Anything else with anti-coag? No. I, think I know there's probably so much more we could go over, but... An interesting overview. We've done specific uh, episodes on BTE and yeah. on ACS and on AFib, so this was yeah. more of a hitting all the drugs thing. I liked it. We warned you ahead of time. I told you exactly what you were going to get. <laughs> no refunds. Um, so, uh, yeah, so get, make sure you guys check out, um, the link in the show notes that'll take you again to the freece.com's, uh, website. Um, and if you're an, un, uh, unlimited member, then use the, the code blood, um, all caps, and that will unlock the post activity tests for you to ACE with ease. And then you'll get your one hour continuing to credit. So thanks to them again, AJ, a word from our sponsors. <laughs> yeah. Pearl of the day. I almost forgot. So the pearl of the day today would be the anticoagulant common reversal agents table that they've got nicely uh, condensed there for you on the website. Um, but you have to be a what is it a paying member to get access to this website. So that's that's the next step. We've been given free pearls over the last couple of episodes. You you're gonna have to commit after this one. I would say it's probably worth it. Um, Pearls is a very reasonably priced app. In Pearls. my com, humble opinion. P-Y-R-L-S. Pearls. Yep. Dot good, com slash Core Consult Rx. You'll get a nice welcoming page that says, Welcome Friends of Core Consult Rx. <laughs> I love it. Sometimes I go to it just so I can feel cool. Yeah. <laughs> I have friends. But yes, yeah, so thank you very much to Pearls, as always, um, for sponsoring the, the podcast. And they've been you know, awesome for us. So um, make sure you support those that support us. Um, we appreciate it. Um, if you want more like lecture style content, as we've mentioned before, check out the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash core consult RX. Um, you get access to, uh, all the PowerPoint slides and, um, lectures that I've recorded. Uh, that is basically, uh, the content that I utilize for my, um, pharmacology, pharmacotherapy classes for my PA students. And, um, it's a lot more boring, but if you like that kind of thing, that's available for you. Uh, and then if you have any questions for us, uh, reach us at the emails in the show notes. You can text us at the number that's in the show notes. So you can reach us on any of the social media platforms. Some way, shape, or form, you can get us, most likely. Now, how quickly we respond, it's going to depend week to week. We have several emails in our uh, that we have to get to at some point, so we're splitting those up. But um, I promise it's not because we're not trying to talk to you. We, we definitely will try to get back to everybody at some point. Um, but sometimes we get busy. Every once in a while. <laughs> Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Free CE. Thank you, Pearls. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a great one.